force. We are dead. We are all dead. We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now in Red Pill Cafeteria. Richard Cox stormed the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest works. These are The Essence of Anarchy and Measuring Mandates. What is the intersection of Gnosticism and Anarchism? Or are they simply synonymous regarding worldviews and goals? What can the Gnostic myths tell us about coercion and tyranny, including what has happened today with the erosion of individual rights? Let's find out together, even as no one here gets out alive. But you can live free if you embrace Gnosis. Please support if you find value in the content. The Gnostic revelation is more important than ever, and I can't do it without you. I am very grateful for those of you who come through every week. It's not hard to contribute. For example, you can simply pledge a few dollars a month on my Patreon. One-time donations are also really appreciated. It really helps, and I can use all the help, as we all do. For you subs, consider an upgrade like Finding Hermes, where we meet twice a month for exclusive presentations and a lively Q&A. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, video game, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or what else. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. And don't forget I do have an Amazon wishlist and a fantastic merch store. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Life. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations, there are no peoples, there are no Russians, there are no Arabs, there are no third worlds, there is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations. 
inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, you Johnny Meat Sacks, attempting to break out of the Black Iron Prison per the intro video if you are watching on video. My name is Miguel Connor, your pompous of Gnosis. And so glad to see everybody, as I see already people lining in, lining in into the chat room. We've got, uh, especially those of you who can escape the stranded plains in New York or the Canadian smoke that has now come to the Midwest. Yes, we've had two days of horrible haze. I've not seen the sunlight, and the moon looks like a, like a scrambled omelet. So strange times, but if you are here, and regardless if you are celebrating the 4th of July Independence Day holiday weekend or whatever, please welcome everybody. I'm very excited. I uh, recently returning from the Astronosis 2 conference. Huge success. Uh, amazing things happen, and I will share as the time goes by. But with us, very excited to have back an individual who I do agree politically and spiritually. We had a great talk last August on conspiracy theories. David Icke, Philip K. Dick, and all that. Um, I'm sure our guest agrees with Jimmy Dore when he says conspiracy theories should be just uh, renamed into spoiler alerts because it's just all of this is coming true. But that is Richard Cox. Richard, thanks. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Wonderful. And we will be discussing your two books, which I've read. They're short but powerful books, uh, Mandating Mandates and the Essence of Anarchy. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm just fine this morning. Also want to extend a welcome to all the Johnny vegetable sacks and all the Johnny mineral sacks out there. So get them all covered. Yeah, I can't include the vegans. They'll get, they'll get offended. <laughs> so, yes, all you Johnnies, no matter what. But you're still trapped in the hologram, so whatever. And Johnny Quark sacks, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, not much housekeeping, as always. If you have any questions, please super chat them so we can get to them. You can do it as low as a dollar or less that way we can keep it organized as the audience has grown in the chats uh if you as always if you please subscribe and like if you are here it does help promote the show yeah and support the show in any way you can uh great shows in july so uh get ready on all different topics including the tarot connecting quantum physics and gnosticism uh, a few finding Hermes on mental development and health, and a whole bunch, and so much more. You will be, you're, you're going to be very impressed as always as summer heats up. Other than that, I think that's all I got. So, Richard, uh, tell us a little bit. Um, well, actually, I wanted to ask you questions. We did an interview in August. I think I looked August 22nd. I swear time is completely warped because it seemed like forever. And I remember I, yesterday I talked to a friend and I ta hadn't talked to her in a month and I, I, it felt like I hadn't, it had been six months since I talked to her. Do you feel time is a little twisted, Richard? <laughs> I think that means you're making very good and productive use of your life, Miguel. <laughs> that is so true. Back in there, you know, most people sat around watching TV, they feel time is flying by. I th hopefully you're right. Yes, I've been very busy. I've had this like attitude this year of no excuses because I've spent my life making excuses about projects and 
spiritual exercises and I have this attitude of just uh, tackling things as they come. And hopefully that means, you know, any project, it's more important than the project itself is the change within you, that you change as an individual. So very insightful, Richard, very insightful. What about you, Vance? Do you feel time is dilating, warped or... Definitely. You know, it ha- it happens when there's too much of a routine, same crap in the news, same crap in your life. You know, it just goes, all time compresses according to the events, right? I think that's one of the contributors of it. All right. Well, you guys let me know what's going on with damn time, uh, Saturn. So, Richard, I wanted to start uh, with anarchism, although I'm going to quote the first quote will be actually from your second book. Uh, uh, I don't even want to say the word, but yeah, we'll go from there. But uh, here you go. Uh, one is from the great Adam Curtis, and he's not. it's not his last one, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which blew me away. But I'm going to quote Adam. I think he's talking about 9-11 or the aftermath of our wonderful 9-11 event. But he says, in the past, politicians promised to create a better world. They had different ways of achieving this, but their power and authority came from the optimistic visions they offered their people. Those dreams failed, and today people have lost faith in ideologies. Increasingly, politicians are seen simply as managers of public life, but now they have discovered a new role that restores their power and authority. Instead of delivering dreams, politicians now promise to protect us from nightmares. And the second quote, and I know a lot of people always, I think, uh, attribute uh, anarchism to Heath Ledger in uh, The Dark Knight, uh, in a way mistakenly partly, but he does say, introduce a little anarchy, upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I am an agent of chaos so you want to speak to these two quotes or shall we get right into anarchism you tell you tell us i can speak to them because they're the opening quotes from both books right and the books kind of bookend each other or they they spiral round and meet because i'd finished the essence of anarchy i put it initially as a series of articles and i finished that just in the first quarter of 2020 now, something else happened in the first quarter of 2020. I think we know what it was. So I, I wonder what I'd, it was, yeah. I'd written the anarchism book on it. I'd given examples of, okay, this is how the, this this is how it might apply in healthcare, in education, in social welfare. And then this thing happened. And all of that seemed a bit irrelevant all of a sudden because all anyone wanted to ask us, yeah, but what if there was like a deadly outbreak, right? Well, how would you do that? I mean, that's all nice. We can sort that stuff out, but forget about that. We need to know about the deadly outbreaks. And I was tearing my hair out of this right oh come on guy i I, you know, I didn't know to put that in and secondly just just read the principle and you can figure it out right if you get the principle it applies to anything so i didn't want to answer that question so no just do your own work but then three years later writing i think i can say this word measuring the mandate is the name of the book um it's a a chance to actually answer that question and to to look at okay this is where the adam curtis quote comes in so Adam Curtis actually doesn't say what he's talking about there. So he could be talking about anything, right? But he's talking about how the state makes this promise to protect us from dangers. Okay, we might not be able to deliver this dream life that we we said we would in terms of economic growth, but without us, you would die of X, Y, Z things. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, is that true, right? And what I'm, what I'm using the quote for is to show that that is a reoccurring pattern. So 20 years ago, it was terrorism. Now it's this past three years being this new thing, right? But there's this continuous promise. Now, Two years from now, when the aliens invade, that'll be the thing the state's <laughs> going to protect us from. Okay, so yeah, this this getting beneath that, so this this claim that repeats and repeats and repeats, and we kind of fall for it every time, and then the there's a shift, right? Because like 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of people initially fall for it, and then there's a retraction of, oh, actually, I'm not quite sure they're doing such a good job, and some level of normality returns, but not quite the normal there was before. So that's that's where uh, I was going with that. No, that's really well said. I always tell people, just read some history. The old Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I mean, nothing new under the sun, this bag of tricks, safety over liberty, whatever. It's been happening forever. I mean, even something like, well, why do we go to war? You can go back to the Roman times. The Romans had this trick. Well, 
we're not threatened, but they might invade us. So we're going to invade them first. I mean, nothing is original. These, these things are just happen. And if you see the perspective in history, as you've shown 9 11 to this, to Ukraine, to the, the, the UFOs or whatever, they're going to use a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere in Asia or something like that, or to get us, yeah, to get us uh, more docile and to make sure that, uh, we fall asleep, as they always say. Um, well, yeah, well, word. So, well, tell us about when anarchy start, because uh, even at the Astronosis Conference, it was like we were at this party, and there was all this group of scholars and researchers, you know, big guys on the internet, and we were they were we're talking about politics, and I said something like, you know, I think I think we need to just. Um, we need to shelve democracy. Good. It had a good run. It's time to just kill it and try something new. And the look of terror on their faces. And I was like, look, you're into the occult. You're supposed to be, you know, open and, you know, going to the edges of reality and see what's happening. And it 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 went down like a lead balloon and I, I got into some friendly arguments. So do you get that too, Richard? People no, think a, anarchy is the box. joker. <laughs> it's a hard box to think way out of. I can relate to this because I remember the first time I read the claim that democracy had become like the new Christianity for us, right? It replaced our religions. And it was, I read that in connection to the invasion of Iraq because now we're going, we went there a thousand years ago to export Christianity and now we're going back to export democracy. And I must have been about 20 years old when I, when I heard that claim. And I thought, no, hang on, that doesn't, I can't get my head around that. Democracy is not a religion. It's like a really functional, it, it is the ultimate functional political system, right? So I, I, I can't relate to that. And it took me a long time to climb out of that all-confining box and see mm -hmm. democracy as this particular ideology that has taken on all these religious overtones and has replaced our religions in many ways and voting and all these kind of rituals we go through to, to get the, the great gods to shine upon us now. Uh, that was a difficult thing to see, so I can certainly relate to it. And I think at the end of the anarchism book, I don't think I know because I wrote it, so <laughs> it's this case, I quote <laughs> that lady, Megan Phelps Roper, who uh, left the Westboro Baptist Church, yeah. Okay, the, the really kind of um, the church that would go around abusing people at funerals, essentially. Um, and I quote her kind of process of how she came to see her beliefs were unfalsifiable, because I came to look on the book, and anarchism in general, as an act of cult deprogramming. Okay, it's about challenging and shattering that mindset. And that's why there's like a hundred odd question marks in the book, because I continuously want people like your friends who might, you know, consider the world could be a dream and something, an imagination in the mind of a God, uh, but can't question democracy to have questions put to them. Well, what about this? And, and how does that work of that? And if you think this, how can you think that and challenge until the, the cult programming falls away? Yeah, well said. I mean, I always thought democracy or the republic was the best. I mean, I like my life. Uh, it's comfortable. Uh, I can complain, but uh, life is good. But at the same time, living a lie and realizing that you are suppressed, that you are oppressed, that you live really in a sort of a prison, a political prison, you have to be, I had to be honest with myself. And it's not like People, I'm sure you're not advocating, Richard. Well, we're going to have an anarchist society tomorrow, and that's it. I mean, these things can be implemented, and they have been implemented uh, in history. I mean, the example is when you have uh, countries coming together to do trade, it's completely anarchist. There's no body above them. These countries, Japan, China, Indonesia, they just get together and they sort of create. So there are examples. The other one is... Uh, uh, Tolkien was very interested in anarchism and the Shire, which many of us think that would be the kind of the paradise world is kind of anarchist. So, uh, what do you think of this? I mean, it's not yeah, something that we have to, I'm not motivated by a hatred of the world, the way it is. There are things that I find morally repugnant, particularly to do with the foreign policy of the countries we live in. Okay. But beyond that, as, as regards the life I meet, as I walk around my day-to-day -day life, you know, I'm sat here having this conversation with you now on the far side of the world and people listening in. This is not a bad life. Okay, I'm quite comfortable. I'm warm and dry. Um, what I think is that there are certain principles and reasons that allow this flourishing of life to what we have. And then there's a political system, uh, an archon, if you will, that masquerades and wants to take the credit for that. And they go, hey, look at me, all these great things I gave you. And you can see <laughs> that. I mean, 
with any election cycle, but it's going to start in the US in a few months, right? Where you're just going to have war to war coverage of <sighs> Biden versus who. It's never as ended. If this is important, right? As if this is yeah. the thing. And it's so important because if you make the wrong voting choice, that will be all these great things you've got gone. And I think it's a, a an archon masquerading, right? Pretending that he gave you all these great things when, when he didn't. So what I'm interested in really is to identify what was that, right? When I would root it in things like the, the worth of the individual, that we, we're not just horns on a board to be discarded in this way or that way um, and rooting it in, in these kind of ideas, uh, then you can, that's what gives rise to the flourishing of, of our society the way it has. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I see in the chat, there's already some in the Chatico, there's a troublemaker call some troll called Van Saatchi. He's coming with an interesting question, which I think is valid. Uh, Vance, do you want to ask, or I can just quote you the difference yeah. between chaos? Yeah, go ahead, please. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. What uh, is there a difference between chaos and anarchy? If so, what is it? And or is it just that the former follows the latter? In other words, does chaos ultimately ensue from pure anarchism? So I started the book with that quote from the Joker to to connect with people's common perception of anarchy. And the rest of the book is basically a refutation of it, saying, no, it's not that. The anarchy is order. Anarchy is a higher level of order. And what I wanted to do was strip back anarchy to its essence, very literally what the title says, okay? Because I found when I'd have this discussion with my very state-inclined friends over the years, uh, I didn't help myself always by incorporating ideas into anarchy, which were not of the essence of it. And the big one for me was government, that anarchy, if you'd ask people what it meant beyond chaos they might say well it means you get rid of the government right and that's not strictly what it means an archos is without archons whatever the whatever the archon is it's to be without that and that sounds good so what i propose the archon i'm, I'm addressing is is that of coercion and it's coercion masquerading as a benevolent force so what i do in the book is contrast coercion that doesn't really masquerade in a benevolent manner and that being like organized crime or the mafia when they run protection rackets okay now they might hand out presents at christmas or something but basically everyone knows the mafia is a criminal organization right the, the attempts to disguise that are not that good and their attitude is more for me and who cares about you and they're, they're quite naked about that right but the state is a um is a compassionate benevolent form of the same kind of force okay so the policing is still kind of a protection racket right you still you, if you don't pay for it there's not like a, a market choice here you still have to, you, you, they'll be the ones that come and drag you away to a cage. And that's set true of all the services the state provides. There's no choice. There's no option. There's no cooperation in them. It, it's coercion um, under this veil of compassion, under this veil of, of selflessness almost. So what I'm proposing um, with anarchy is that it is simply a movement towards what we already have, where we already have peer-to-peer -peer interactions. Like the people who are signed up to Aonbyte in the member section are doing it because they get value from that and Miguel gets value from supporting it. It's not like the British Broadcasting Corporation, where if you don't sign up to them, you, you, you don't have a choice. You get abusive letters and then someone knocks on your door. So that that's what I'm proposing a movement towards, this higher level of cooperation and consent. Well, that sounds good. The question is, though, <clears throat> there are always people who want power for its own sake and want to manipulate themselves into position of controlling others or getting something from others. And the question is, you know, if, if the, how do we make sure that the strong don't overcome the weak? Like, you know, like young people just overrunning, throwing elderly people out of their homes because there's nobody to stop them. Yeah. So what I'm not proposing, what this isn't is a solution to, all problems like the, the question of how do we stop the strong overcoming the weak is a question that was asked thousands of years ago it's asked now and it will, we will be challenged by that a thousand years to come it's just a an archetypal problem of being human so what yes. i'm not doing is finding perfect solutions what i'm doing is contrasting different options so currently we have this state-based model of security because in this particular instance it's a question of security where um you have this one entity that has a monopoly on providing security over a certain area now you can also have some kind of private security but it must exist under uh, under this entity okay and then it provides security from um, in a different form from surrounding groups okay so 
I'll just give the example I gave in the book. So th- this is really an outgrowth of the feudal system, if you think about it, where the Lord has his peasants and they give him sure. chickens and pigs and he, he provides protection for them. So I, I give an example. This is somewhat simplified. But in Iceland in the Middle Ages, um, the, the lords were not bound to a geographical area. So you could choose which lord provided security for you. And that meant if the Lord wasn't doing anything, if he was just taking all your chickens and pigs and giving you nothing in return for it, you had the option to go to a different one. Um, so what I'm really proposing there is a kind of like that's equivalent to a, a, a kind of privatized security service whereby different companies could compete to bride. And um, then the, the receiver has a, a choice in that and has some power over them. So because what you have in the in the policing systems um, here, if they, if they don't function, You've got nothing. And so um, I propose that probably, probably the police do more to, on the whole to increase crime. Right now, um, that's not me being against any particular police officer or anything like that, but just by the nature of their structures. That um, just an incident here recently, I know a fellow who was um, punched in the street and he went to the police about it. And the police said, well, if you carry this on, we're probably going to prosecute you because you defended yourself. Now, that's a, a slight shortening of a wider story right but there's nothing you can do about that there's nothing you can do about police officers turning up and arresting people for putting stuff on the internet that they don't like these days so really it boils down to that there's no system that is made better through um through monopolization through having only one provider for it everything is made better through pluralism and in terms of security nobody really knows the best way to provide security so like nobody really knows the best way to provide healthcare or education or the best way to podcast so what you need is pluralism. You need lots of different people competing to provide, cooperating and competing so they can learn and grow and everything evolves together. Yeah, I've often thought of that uh, option myself, you know, like you subscribe to different garbage services or subscribe if you don't like the garbage service. And then the, the next thought I have is, well, aren't the garbage services or the police service going to go to war with each other to try to ace each other out? <laughs> and then you get kind of on the next oh. level, right? Well. <laughs> like gangs in the cities, exactly what happens. Yeah, well, yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Sorry. Well, th- this this question only really comes up with um, regard to security. Okay, so with regard to garbage, so because we have this whole market system where Coca Cola and Pepsi might compete, and I'm I'm not saying this because I favour these corporate behemoths who provide this sugary, crappy drink, but they don't usually kill each other, right? You don't have private companies. Like Miguel probably has never gotten a punch up with Alex over at Skeptico or something over, you know, who who has the better podcast. Well. You know? I see him um, on the street. Yeah, I you will. see him on the maybe it could happen yet, but generally, <laughs> right there, there is this. Um, our market systems work fine, but when we get into questions of security, it, it, it becomes well, wouldn't they all, uh, wouldn't they all kill each other? Well, if if this were the case, well, you have this um, anarchy of nations at the moment, right, where security forces cooperate beyond state bo- state boundaries uh, to the only way to resolve that would be to have a world government if you didn't have that. Um, so we're kind of happy enough with it on that level, but there's not necessarily the incentive because if I'm, um, if I'm employing a security firm to look after my property, I'm not employing them to go and like invade some like the housing estate next door and steal all their stuff and, and come back to me with a nice set of like patio furniture. Or something that's that's not a world i want to live in so the vast majority of people paying for this service are, are not wanting like a, a violent uprising and yeah so that, that how's that no that makes sense and yeah i mean human nature is human nature there is no utopia anarchism is not going to solve human nature as it's been but uh, I feel it's the best one, or at least we should explore. I mean, what did Churchill once said? He said, democracy is a disaster, but it's the best one of all the other ones. You know, even he knew that as long as we're humans living together, it's always going to be uh, demiurgic, if you would. And yeah, your book certainly quotes a lot of uh, Tony Soprano and his reverse Midas ch- touch. And yeah, all taxation is theft. Uh, it's coercion. or uh, like the mafia, our government does not create a damn thing. It just manages and decides to give contracts, whether it's the roads, even the army, it's uh, private companies are behind it. That's all it is. It's just this bad management. And like you said, it is coercion. We don't have a choice. If Biden or Trump wins in the next election, half of the population is basically oppressed. I mean, that's how they're going to feel because their guy now is putting 
is out and the guy they hate is throwing all these rules and Supreme Court judges. So what kind of government is this that every four years you're either screwed or not? Same with your city and everything else. So, um, And as far as the Gnostics, and I don't know if you want to speak to this, Richard, um, I, at the Astronosis Conference, because I was looking at our preparing for our interview, I asked academics like Gabriel DeConnick and others, well, and I know the answer, but are, were the Gnostics anarch, anarchists? And they're like 100%. They, again, without archons. They call themselves the generation without the king. They were, they were yeah, they, were out of, they believed in uh, individual rights and uh, not following the law, although you never have records of Gnostics being uh, arrested by the Roman authorities, which is strange. But... The one thing that the Gnostics were didn't budge on because they came from the tradition of the Essenes and the Therapeutae and the the Pythagoreans is that they were that one of their main goals beyond Gnosis was healing. They believed in uh, psychic healing, magical potions to heal, healing on hands, and therefore they also believed in uh, charity or help for the downtrodden and the poor, which is. You may sound paradoxical, but the Gnostics were like, we don't want a government, but the poor and the hungry have to be taken care of. That's that's non-negotiable. And they got in trouble with Plotinus because Plotinus was like, oh, the you know, he was going for the government, the chain of being, and the the emperor is just an extension of the one. And screw you, Gnostics, uh, don't worry about the poor. So, um, what do you think of this, Richard? I know you kind of align with that, right? Do you feel that? Healthcare is a good thing. Uh, yes, yes, healthcare is a good thing. So, um, as I recall, I write about it in the book as yeah. you've got to consider the trade off, right? That the government can at any moment reach in, socialize healthcare, and then that will increase the provision. But that has massive downstream consequences. Okay. Because if you think about the way it's provided and the way research is done, the market and the state models are so substantially different that mm -hmm. um, you're going to get very different long-term outcomes. So I look at the effect, particularly of the FDA in the book, the Food and Drug Administration, when it started heavily regulating the development of new medicines. And this was after the flamidahide scandal that hit Europe, didn't hit the United States so strongly. So mm -hmm. the United States took this as being, well, we did a good job here, so we should like beef this up a bit, and then we, we won't have this European disaster in the future. The, the consequence of introducing coercion is you, you having a coercive regulatory system. So everyone has to go for this one regulator. There's not a, a multiplicity of regulators. It means that if you think about the incentives um, in the FDA, if I work for them, I'm going to get in trouble when I approve a medicine that goes on to hurt people. I'm not going to get in trouble if I kick this medicine back 10 times and keep knocking it back to the manufacturers to improve further. All the people that die through lack of access to it I don't get in trouble for that. That's just, that's unseen, if you like, mm -hmm. the seen and the unseen. Um, if costs go up so much, the small independent producers of different developments of medicine, if they go out of business and you're only left with like three or four giant pharmaceutical firms, uh, that I'm not going to get in trouble for that. So by contrast to a consensual model, like you probably want some kind of regulation or someone to test a drug before you stuck it in your body or, right. or any kind of medicine. Um, so but if there's a, a multiplicity of providers that you don't have to go for any particular one of them, then there's a tension on them from two angles. So on the one hand, the, the regulating body cannot take forever to put a drug out, or I, I appreciate people are into holistic medicine, but I'm just using this as a, a sort of abstract example. Um, because if they do, the, the company producing it is incentivized not to work with them again. But if they put out too soon, and it hurts people, then their reputation as a regulator goes down. So you have a tension of forces on there, which produces more of an optimal outcome. So that that was my example, really, that with medicine, that it, people really need to consider the, the massive consequences of introducing this element of coercion into medicine at all levels. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live 
live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Exactly, yeah. Like you, you're saying, anarchism and other uh, other avenues or systems are much better for innovation. And we humans, that's how we survive. We innovate our way out of problems, out of disasters, out of hunger. That's that's what makes us so much different. And if you take away, well, we start dying off. We start becoming uh, uh, well dark and uh breaking breaking down in psychic ways on a collective level so the other issue in anarchism and of course you address this in your book richard is that of property obviously what and you bring a lot of examples you bring uh the example of the guy with the statue but anyway tell the audience how does anarchism deal with property beyond the government telling you what's yours and what isn't Well, yeah, I suppose it's a rejection of that idea that you can you can um, have property removed from you. Okay, so I think there's kind of two pillars, right? There's no coercion, and then there's property. Because if you don't know what property means, you can't really know if you're coercing anyone or not. Like, if right. I just move into someone else's house, I'm like, well, we need a theory of property, right? So I give an example that really comes from John Locke about a man walking on the beach, and he finds a clump of wood, takes it home, carves it. And then at that point, you probably wouldn't just go into his house and take it. It would feel something like be very unfair about that, like nicking this guy's statue. But if you saw right. the lump of wood on the beach half an hour before he did, you probably would feel okay. So some some kind of magical act has happened there. But we have this capacity to turn the unowned into the owned. And we commonly agree upon that. And I noticed like my dogs have, I just saw it yesterday because I just got a puppy. And um, the the older dog had, she she gave the puppy two days grace and then had have serious words about going in her dinner bowl. Okay. <laughs> like that's it. I'm done playing this game. And so they have Man, this very limited sense of property. Like the, the circumference of this bowl, that's mine. <laughs> but beyond that, not so much. They couldn't say like own a holiday home in the South of France. That wouldn't um, like, I don't own a holiday home in the South of France, by the way, but just, you know, they couldn't compute that, what that would mean, but we do. So um, I just go for examples of that, of, um, what we commonly take to be, um, you know, a legitimate kind of ownership that we bestow this this quality on the unowned. Um, so if I got to the ward and then you came along, Miguel, and wrestled it off me, you'd say like, well, that's that's not right. But if you if I was walking towards it and you charged in front of me, then maybe say, okay, well, that's just competitive. That's kind of okay. Um, depends what kind of person you are. Um, and so we have this common kind of theme of it, but the we also have an exchange, right? So I could sell the statue to you. But the state comes along and says, well, I can take like 10% of that statue um, as a kind of taxation. And you don't have a say in that then. And so you see, so you could say like, Miguel, if, if you're like, you could act for benevolent reasons and say, well, that's a real nice statue. You know, I think that would look a lot better if it was on public display and you take mm -hmm. it out and you, you can justify that. And you can say, well, look, like before, only Richard is benefiting from his work. But now, like all these people that walk past it are. So this, this is like, I'm a really benevolent person here. I'm not an archon. I'm, I'm doing this for, for good reasons. <laughs> You're an aeon. But, yeah, but the, um, the downside is, of course, well, like now, like the cost of that, the unseen cost, is that nobody is secure in their property anymore because we've all uh, we've all validated like acts of theft. And I'm not incentivized to produce anymore because I'm not going to go get more wood and carve it. So you, there are these unseen things go on. And that's perhaps like what's intriguing to me about the, the Gnostic perspective from this is that um, there are of course like bad and selfish people in the government but what's interesting is so many people think they're doing a necessary and benevolent thing 
and that the state is ultimately a necessary and benevolent entity. So yeah. the archons that really scare me more than like the mafia archons of the I'm going to take yours because it's good for me and I don't care about you is the archon that says I love you I'm going to take care of you you know I'm just going to take this you have to go with me on this you know that's a a much scarier archon to me oh yeah yeah yes. the road to hell good intentions what do you think Vance uh, does this idea make a sense to you about property or do you have a question for Richard yeah well um the the, the um real question is like what laws um are agreed upon to regulate, you know, whose property is which, you know, and that's, that's, you know, like when you sell things, uh, so forth, um, the definition of property is really the thing that, that is, that is at issue. So, um, you know, if I buy a house, but then I, you know, I'm a bad neighbor and I'm adversely affecting other people, you know, you know, of course they, they shouldn't take my property, but at some point, like if I start fires, and th so yeah. they're, 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 they're extreme situations where you can threaten other people by, you know, indirectly by what you're doing on your own property, quote unquote. I, I get what you're saying. So th this is the, one of the reasons that really pushed me to write the book was struggling with and coming to terms with that question myself, because as I said at the start, I wanted to move away from anarchy as no government, because it's no government in the sense that we currently understand governments, but it's no it's not no governance, okay? It doesn't mean so that you can't have a rule at the football club that says you can't wear your muddy boots in the changing room anymore or something like that. You have a governing body of the club that sets rules down. So with regard to that question of property, I gave a, an example of, like, let's say somebody acquires some land, nobody owns it to start with, they come along and they they mix their labor with it, is the term John Locke uses, in the sense that picking the piece of wood up from the beach i'm mixing labor with it that's right. that's the magic act that makes it mine mm. and on this land uh, he our owner uh, builds a an apartment block 100 flats in it okay now people might purchase them they might rent them off him he might set himself up as the king of the apartment block but those people are going to want some kind of governing body they're going to need to know who cleans the internal areas okay how do we put money aside to replace the roof how do we no, not every apartment is going to want to get their own window cleaner to put scaffolding up to just clean their window and do the next. There are some activities that you want to be done in a government-like manner. They're just more efficient. But there are some activities like uh, you might collectivize window cleaning, but you're probably not going to collectivize like um, buying books for the apartment or Netflix subscriptions because everyone has their own kind of individual tastes on that. Right. Okay? And when you collectivize, it becomes restrictive. Uh, but who cares about window cleaning? It doesn't matter. What, what company you have in there. So you need some kind of governing body for it, whether it's democratically elected, whether it's um, a dictatorship run by the, the guy that built it. But the point is, you can only exert that governance over land that you've come to legitimately own and homestead. This is not like the British Empire arriving on the west coast of Australia and saying everything <laughs> over the east coast, that's mine now. Yep. No. And um, that's just the way. It, so it limits the power that um, that states have, that governments have, to take control of vast areas. And then you have this immense multiplicity arise. So if this guy, this developer, does set himself up as the king of the apartment block and he does a really bad job, then the property price is going to fall, he's going to go out of business, and all the places that do a good job will flourish. Equally, he's incentivized to do a good job because it's his property. It's not like when you have... <laughs> Every administration that comes into the U.S. just runs that national debt higher. It's not their property. They're going to make millions of pounds out of it. They're going to get some deal working for the World Bank afterwards or something. So it doesn't matter if they set fire to the country because their their wealth increases. So it, it ties governance into a direct ownership uh, interest in the the quality of what they're owning. Of course, we have homeowners associations. I don't know if you have that where you are, but um, that exactly that. <clears throat> they're elected yeah. they have boards and they wind up to be archons you know oh they, they, every they, time oh. yeah I, it's it's human nature i i'm not saying that it solves the problem i mean limit the problem okay yeah but they, they're archons but they're not archons over 10 million acres of land yeah, it's a divide and conquer <laughs> little bit i like the idea of getting groups of archons fighting each other and this way they stay out of your hair. <laughs> That's the way, you know, the American Constitution was supposed to be set up, right? And and the, and the two-party system, of course, then they get together and they said, all right, well, let's not fight each other. Let's band together and fight them.
Right. So, but I, I agree with your uh, general trend of <clears throat> getting rid of the coercion, getting rid of the monopolies. That's really, you know, getting rid of the concentrations of power because that, that's what the archons are all about, right? Concentrating power and lording it over, literally. Yeah, cent- uh, tyranny cannot exist without centralization. That's just a fact. You know, the less centralization, yeah. the less py- power the demiurge and the despots have. So that's, that's yeah, that's mathematical. And I like that scene in your book, Richard. Where you're talking about Tyrion being in jail, <laughs> trying to explain property to his jailer because he doesn't have it right there. Could you share with the audience? I forgot how funny that was. Yeah, Maud, the jailer. Maud, yes. <laughs> He's um it's in the I think it's in the it is in the Game of Thrones book, but it's certainly portrayed in, in the show where he He's Tyrion's in this sky cell, and if he he can fall out of it and die, so he decides that enough of this, and he says to more the day, look, I'm a Lannister, I'm very rich, and if you if you go and get a message to the the lady of this land, I'll give you gold, and no. more checks him up and down, and no gold, and whacks him with a stick because I don't have it on me, and he has to say to this property is an abstract concept, and I just used it because. It illustrates that it's so obvious to us property is an abstract concept, but we're all a bit like Maud, really. We don't really think, well, what does it mean? Like, Maud can't understand it. If it's not on you, then what do you mean you own it? Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. But we've, we've developed this idea without really thinking about it and without really thinking about what happens if we violate it and what happens if we have an institution right in the center of society that continuously violates it. What are the downstream consequences of that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even my wife and I were talking again, we're trying to figure out what, where to move in our destiny. And we're like, well, what does it matter? If we buy the house, we don't really own the house because really the bank owns the house. Let's be realistic. Uh, even if, and if we pay a down payment, they can, let's say we buy the house outright. Well, you have imminent domain. You've got to get there. There's permits, you know, the government is still inside your damn house that you've paid off. So mechanics, so of yeah, get your yeah, roof yeah. fixed, right? And the <laughs> roofer takes over your the house. Home, the homeowners uh, association can have you kicked out or put a lien on you. I mean, it's like we don't really own our property. So I said, well, I'm just going to get, I'm going to buy more shotguns and get more guns. And then my wife will end up like Waco. And I'm like, yes, I think that's the natural conclusion of liberty in this country. When it comes down to it, if you are truly free, and don't get me wrong, I mean, the, the cult was, you know, had some odious ideas, uh, but still, you're going to end up like, uh, yeah, you're going to end up in the newspaper or something. It's just the way it is. I mean, when I watch, there's this documentary, Richard, I think it's what's a wild country about Osho. Mm. And uh, even though Osho was Osho, right? He was doing his weird, weird stuff. But as soon as they bought the land and they set up their own government, they were doomed. The federal government and the FBI had a bullseye on there. Even if it would have been a perfect commune, like well run, no, you know, no exploitation of people and no Rolls Royces, whatever. The federal government was not going to allow that pocket of freedom in this country. Just it can't do it. Mm. And do yeah, you I, uh, go ahead? No, go 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 ahead. I'll... You know, you know, um, th- there was a show in the in the nineties. I guess it was Max Headroom, and it portrayed a futuristic society. Great show. I recommend to everybody. Yeah. And the only way people could really get out of all this is they became blanks, quote unquote. They had no records, no nothing. They lived in you know they they were like nomads, and they uh, they lived in buses like blank reg lived in a bus and broadcasted his his you know his people's movement from from his bus and drived around if they were after him uh, it, it seems like anonymity is one of the best ways of escaping the whole thing but then that's a whole nother lifestyle yeah indeed so I guess the next question, I guess, Richard, would be examples. And of course, I gave an example of uh, countries uh, practice anarchism all the time when they do trade agreements. As long as the USA and China and Russia can stay out of it, they go fine. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's, of course, an example in India. There was some company that uh, brought in all foreigners and everything in India, but they found themselves in like a no man's land where neither of the local governments in India would take responsibility 
And so this company and everybody in the company started uh, putting money in. They got their own water, their own housing, their own security. And it went really well. It's one of those examples because it worked. And it had to work because these people were going to die. I mean, no government was going to take care of their needs from the roads to the water to the to the plumbing. And, and they got together. But in your view, have you seen any good examples you want to share of the audience of anarchism that works? Yeah, well, might not be the answer you're looking for, but I generally say the example is right here and now all around you. It's when you went out and bought a cup of coffee and you didn't have to punch the guy to get it and he didn't have to steal your wallet to pay for it. It's when I agreed to come on a podcast, we all have a good time. Like we we experience anarchy continuously through our lives. So yeah, there are examples. I mean, there's um, I know there was a guy who set up a place called Liberland between Serbia and Croatia, I think it was. There was a little strip of land that after the um the war and the agreements there, nobody had claimed. And he went and moved over there. He had to kayak up a river or something and, and set up this little property. Now, I don't know how that's going. Um, I know that um Honduras had these kind of worker zones because it became a kind of second world country in terms of the technology jobs you had there. So hmm. um you could earn a reasonable salary and own a mobile phone, but it wasn't like possible to walk down the street using that phone about it being robbed from you so people set up kind of private uh privately policed communities there i think the um the recent elections uh put a dampener on that um it's very hard to say because i don't know these things can often have shadow sides to them too um so it, it's hard to like you sort of those show thing these how these communities go but I really think the best example is here and now, the world we experience and enjoy every day in contrast to interacting with any coercive institution. Like if if I wasn't to pay my Netflix fees, I would get some polite emails and then they'd retract the service. When I don't pay the BBC TV license, I get these letters in red telling me someone's going to come around and drag me away to a cage, you know? So that's that's the contrast, right? You may not like Netflix, right? You might think they're abhorrent and immoral and and all the rest and yeah you can, stop paying, but you can <laughs> stop paying your subscription if you don't like the bbc well that's tough you won't watch anything and this is this is a uk example right so i know americans so you, quite, you, you have to pay your license yeah sorry you have I, to yeah. pay you <laughs> have like, to pay the license if you have a television set in the in the uk you have to pay a license have it you can't to have it and i mean you can own one and keep it in your garage but if you turn it on and watch tv on it it doesn't matter if you never watch the british broadcasting corporation you have to pay uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, otherwise, they will they will come around your house and bang on your door and uh, socialism right? you off to jail. Oh, the wow. government owns the air, and you got to buy it. Right. Yeah. So, it, it, by by contrast, America is an example of an anarchist society compared to Britain. Then, in terms of TV, because you don't have that. You don't have to like what is it CBS there? So you don't have to compulsorily pay into uh, this, to, or you can't watch any of the other channels. Yeah, for certain. I think the founding fathers were certainly closer to anarchism or minarchism, as it called uh, their their original vision of how things are. I mean, there are arguments that uh, it was more oppressive than you think, because I think uh, most people don't don't know that before the founding fathers and the revolution, uh, the East Coast was like Babylon, Boston, all these cities were just debauched places of drugs and music and prostitution and all that and it's always like the founding fathers had to come and almost clean it up so it was it's a wild west watch that erosion in the united states because you have you don't have a country that's coming out of the depths of time you have a country that starts at a particular time and it starts with particular principles and then you can check in and see how's that going and particularly post the civil war through the progressive era, you start to see this redefining as well. You know, maybe freedom was all very good for the 19th century, but this is a new progressive age now, and we need the state to be more involved. We've got science now; they can make better predictions. Everyone just doing their own thing. It's chaotic. It doesn't work. What we need is centralized planning. And this this ideology rises and it retracts a bit, and it comes forward again, and it comes forward very strongly in Franklin Roosevelt's time, and then Lyndon Johnson pushes it further, and it ties in with this massive expansion of, of foreign policies where well, we were going to be isolationists and just keep to ourselves and not go out and run the world but we just need to do this little thing in cuba because they're close by and the spanish are being really oppressive there and actually the european there's a big thing going on in europe now now we can't let the germans get away with it oh that the germans are at it again and now the vietnamese that and it just expands and expands and expands <laughs> until it becomes a global empire so you have this this little seed this almost anarchist say or very 
liberal, very classically liberal Minica state, but it yeah. has this little seed in it of statism, of coercion. And that seed just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it takes over everything. And here we are. Here we are indeed. It's uh, There's one example. Well, uh, there's a lot of examples. That's why I like your books because, again, you, you tie it into Game of Thrones or The Sopranos, like the the Feech La Mana from The Sopranos, the famous mm-hmm. one with the with the lawnmowers that always, yeah, I thought it was an intense episode. And of course, like yeah. you said, the idiot, of course, easily gets fooled and gets back to jail by Chrissy. Uh, but there is the, the chilling example that I kept thinking about all night. Um, and it reflects our society is what happened in China. And you talk about when Mao came into power, they were like, uh, well, we have only a finite number of grain. Well, guess what? Of course, you got to cre- you got to project your shadow, create a boogeyman. Sparrows, sparrows eat too much grain. So if we eliminate the sparrows, humans will have more grain. And everybody bought into it, and people were killing sparrows and breaking the eggs and scaring them so they'd get so exhausted and died. And after a while, the whole population was almost extinct, right? Of the sparrows, but guess what? The sparrows, what? They were eating bugs and other insects. So, of course, what happened is it became worse because suddenly you had all these insects destroying the grain and you had the Chinese, of course, starving. And this yeah, is when you say worse, of, <laughs> huh? like a lot worse, like 30 million a people lot. starve. Yeah. A lot yeah, yeah. It was t- history. yeah. For killing sparrows. And it, it's this really stupid idea that you have with centralized planning and governments is that if I add something or if I remove something, It'll fix the problem. Like, if I just raise taxes here or cut this, this sort of really dumb linear thinking that doesn't take into account the complexity of nature, the complexity of humanity, the freedom of humanity, and it just, things just blow, well, they just get worse. And your Chinese example, I think, is the perfect example, don't you think? The scary thing is, I looked at that for long enough to come to see it is not stupid, right? I could see if you're in China logic. at that time, right? And you look back through Chinese history, there are these periodic famines. There was a massive one in 1915. And you could think, you know, if we just got rid of those damn sparrows and we made the big, <laughs> you could see how it made sense, right? And then the problem is it's not a little experiment. You're going to run in your backyard and see if it helps or you don't do it. No, you've got the power to do it all over China. And this is the problem of benevolence. Like if this was some evil emperor who didn't care whether the poor lived or died, right, then they do a lot better. But when you have someone who tries to be benevolent benevolent, and comes in and kills all the sparrows, yeah, worst famine in history, Cre- created through, an, an, I think, a genuine effort to be benevolent. Right? That's what's Mao did things later, which really weren't genuine, like the whole thing about um, having everyone stop growing food so they could just produce steel because that would be, you know, then they built up this great military or the cultural revolution. These were really malevolent acts. These, these was no uh, care or concern. But that, what's terrifying is probably the worst thing Mao ever did was it like a genuine effort to increase food supplies. And killed millions of people. Mm. Yeah. The Chinese and the Russians, God, those people have been through so much in the last hundred years. Uh, you got to feel for them. And yeah, it could happen. I think uh, the UK is farther down the road into this sort of, collectivism and borgism don't you think richard the united states is starting to crumble but i think uh, the uk is pretty much there wouldn't you say yeah i think there are it's kind of hard for me to see because i'm inside it and i've always been inside it i think there are things that um there are just traditions we don't have here like we don't have a strong libertarian tradition okay here like we, um there are, there are concepts that get spoken about on the American news and such that just wouldn't really make a lot of sense here because we, we don't think that way. Um, like when Barack Obama wanted to bring the the healthcare thing in in about 2009, I'm sat around having lunch with my friends in the pub and it comes on TV, Americans protesting, like no state-controlled healthcare or, or whatever. And no. we all look at the TV, right, aghast, like... Who, who on earth wouldn't want the government to run healthcare? I mean, that's crazy, you know? And it took a few <laughs> years later for us, oh, yeah, there are already downsides to the government running healthcare, and they're quite substantial. Uh, but, like, the, there's very few people here that would ever question that, and that goes across the board. Like, there's a, no one really thinks, isn't it weird that I have to pay a license to own a television or use a television set? It's, it, it's more ingrained. Uh, I don't think our politics has quite the animosity the US has, and it's not quite the media spectacle. It might be because our prime minister is not a head of state, 
the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, um, these are kind of weird mythical concepts, but the prime minister does not take on the kind of spiritual or mythical significance that no. a president takes on in the U.S. mind. We have no John Kennedy figure in this country. Mm-hmm. They can be thrown yeah, out more easily there too, right? Prime Minister vote of no confidence, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's can't get rid of the president that easy here. Nope. <laughs> yeah, at the same time, yeah, free speech seems to be less. You can get thrown in jail for social media posts. Although the tabloids in England, they are magnificent at their lying. They're better than the United States when it comes to just blatant lies when you read some of these uh these magazines it just cracks me up uh how do they get yeah. away with it richard because yeah i mean yeah how do they get away with it well they do pay out on libel i think but not still right they just make more money selling peddling the papers yeah but i mean if you ever know anyone who's been featured in the papers it's interesting to talk to them because they're they just get everything wrong <laughs> they don't there's no real adherence to honesty and um, it's quite it's quite incredible yeah the, the tabloids here we, we do see more of that and I think British people are kind of shocked by this um, when people are being arrested for social media posts and so on. I, I don't think there's a great sort of well of support for this kind of thing. Uh, but if you're not reading certain publications, you probably don't even know about it. For one, and it's, it's a strange world we're slipping into. I don't know if we continue down this path or if there's some kind of backlash. Like I have equal concern that the 1930s will be kind of fascist, actually. It'll be a kind of right-wing reaction to to what we're seeing now where all the uh, non-conformists have to go back into the closet yeah that, 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 that's a problem it's always the danger yeah you go to one extreme as a way to solve this problem and you're right back this that's typically cycle. what happens when the left rises up like the the times when the left took over like you could say russia china and cambodia it's all coming out of like war-torn states abject poverty terror and all the rest any other time that the left has attempted to rise up, it just gets like smacked down and Jakarta option, you know, that's what happened in Indonesia or Chile or across Latin America. And you end up with some very hard dictatorial government. So, um, yeah, that could, that could equally be, uh, yeah, sorry. Taking some no, 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 you're right. I we, mean, we could all move into some wonderful future too. Let's, I mean, yeah. Cause I mean, communism and fascism were just uh, reactions to, uh, the disaster of the uh, the Great Depression. Capitalism really botched things up. So, of course, these movements were allowed to come up. And then, well, they took over. And then you get the sort of interplay between these forces. Uh, it's just the way it is. Um, Vance, any questions from you or the audience? Yeah, Occult Fan has joined us. And he wanted to know, Richard, uh, what's your opinion on the American revolution? Um, Occult fan states that he's a descendant of the Harrington house uh, in Lexington. Um, so what's your take on the American revolution and would you fight if you felt there was a real chance for a positive change for you personally? Um, so I'm going to have to take something of a pass on the American revolution. I'm doing a, a history series on my podcast called the energy vampire. And I jump into us history in the 1890s. Okay, because it's a, it's a good point to jump in because they've just sorted the Indian problem, and now they're going off overseas to look for new en- uh, look for new enemies. So sort of the Spanish American War, the conquest of Hawaii. I'm not great on anything before that. Okay, so I've read interesting stuff on the American Revolution. I remember reading uh, on the question of violence, uh, Mark Kozlansky's uh, book Nonviolence: The History of a Dangerous Idea, uh, where he kind of kind of made a case against the revolution. Yeah, I'm. But that, that's kind of my limit on it. And the second part of the question is, would I fight for if I thought it was going to make a substantial difference? Um, well, I mean, I'd obviously like, I'm not coming from a, like a pacifist position. Okay, so I think that it's, I suppose this is a question I, I've kind of waved on. I've been very attracted to ideas of nonviolence in the past, particularly by the book I just mentioned, Kozlansky, um, and the idea that nonviolent movements are, but by no means perfect, but more effective at bringing down power structures by continuously holding the moral high ground. Um, I, I suppose maybe through exposure to American gun culture, I've come to question that more and think, okay, well, how far do you take that? Because do you not do you not use force to maintain law and order in society? So I'm I'm sort of conflicted about that myself. Um, I generally think efforts that, that use violence to make the world a better place are corrupting to the soul and ultimately ineffective. Uh, so I'm not sort of drawing absolutes there, but 
that, that's generally what I conceive of them. Maybe you could go and uh, steal all the muskets, you know, when they're not looking. <laughs> that's not violent, right? Well, they're, they're, it doesn't have to be violent all the time. I mean, look at uh, Poland. Look at Romania. Yeah, the dictator got hung, but uh, it was pretty much... Uh, there are times, and you could look up history, where the people just... They move, they take over, and it doesn't have to be people shooting each other. It doesn't have to there be the French Revolution or anything like that. So there are... Yeah, so this is the thing. Because if, if I decide to spill blood, okay, I am not the most violent person. I might be the least violent, but I'm not the most violent person around. So if I decide to spill blood, there's like 100 other guys who are going to spill a lot more around this. So you can start these things. You don't know where they're going to end. There are like fascinating examples. Again, I'm taking this from Kozlansky's book, um, Nonviolence, the History of a Dangerous Idea, uh, how the um, people in Denmark protected the Jewish population almost down to a man from the, mm. the Nazi. They recognized they could not resist in the same manner the French did. So they would engage in um, go slows, work stoppages, protests. There you go. And the uh, so essentially set up a negotiation of, okay, well, we will basically function as a society in the way you want us to. And that only we only do that, however, if um, our Jewish population are are protected or they're moved out or, or so on. So um, they did, yeah, there are very powerful examples of, of nonviolent resistance. Yeah, I think also, I think, I don't know if it's the Danish or the Norwegians, but uh, the Germans would have the Jews put on those stars. So the whole population would start wearing those stars to confuse the Nazi soldiers and the Nazis just gave up. It's like, we can't arrest them. We don't know who's Jewish and who's, uh, you know, uh, whatever else. So there's an immense creativity to nonviolent solutions. Here's another example initially go to like a punch in the face is the best way to solve this problem it's the, probably the first one that comes to <laughs> anyone's mind right or pick up the gun but nonviolence requires almost a, a dipping into that creative well of consciousness right and the emergence of something more and there you have it oh you of the broken places you veterans of a thousand psychic wars Richard revealing that it's time we explore new options or seriously revisit old ones if we are to continue as a species. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria for the second part of Richard's interview or if you find any value in the content. There are many ways to sub and many ways to support and one will fit your needs or budget. If you need any help with any of the choices, just let me know. The alternative solution of the Gnostics is more critical than ever in this Philip K. Dick world in Gnostic times. But this is our time to shine like crazy diamonds. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.